belong together, there's peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and, uh, and then his reign from heaven will be complete. He will come, and the uh, resurrection will occur finally. Okay, that is a post-millennial view. That is the view, pretty much, of Andrew Sandlin, who wrote this book, this primer. Uh, the middle view of that chart, and I don't I would suggest you bring this back with you every time, because I might reference it, but it sure helps to have a picture. But the middle view is the view that chapter 1 takes that he will argue against in his book. The middle view is pretty popular still these days, although it's waning in popularity, and we refer to it as premillennial dispensational view of the future. And I'll read through some of the descriptions for that in just a bit on the sheets I handed out. And then the final, or the third view, is amillennialism. There, there, there's no belief that Revelation 20 with a thousand years has anything to do with really time. It, it has, uh, there's no millennium, in other words, that we are experiencing or going to experience. Uh, things just remain as they are. We continue to uh, live for God and uh, reach out with the gospel, hoping that men come to him, and at some point Jesus will return, and the end will be there, the final judgment will occur, and he will have eternal fire or eternal bliss, paradise. That's pretty common uh, for reformed people to hold the last, there's a lot of view on millennialism, although People are all over the board on, on these views, and uh, I would say probably every other Reformed friend or neighbor you might have would probably find themselves in the middle these days because they listen to a lot of radio or watch certain TV preachers, and so they come to believe some of these things in the middle um, regarding uh, premillennial dispensational. In a nutshell, well, we'll get to that. I won't, I won't give you in a nutshell on anything there. Who, who read the first chapter? First of all, one person, two people, three people, kind of, four while, okay. That's good. And that is the longest chapter, and it is the one that, that he's dealing with at, at length because it's pretty commonly held today by people, by your average Joe. I, I wrote somewhere once that I remember going to a church. It was a Lutheran church. Okay. And um, we were attenders there. My folks were attending there. It was in Sand Creek, Wisconsin. And the pastor, either he preached salvation, he preached a four-point gospel-type message to try to save the people who were there, or he preached on the end times. Those were the two things. And he considered himself an expert on the end times, right? And the expert end times uh view that he held was this middle one called Bill Bells and Whistles and, and so on. The popular one today. And I, I think you find, which I it was quite disheartening. <laughs> that those were the two things he always preached on and that he was wrong about the, the eschatological one. That's real frustrating to me. But um, I think you find a lot of people about the only time that they dig into the Bible seems to be when it's over what's going to happen in the future. And they're very like, intrigued. And they think that things going on today, especially 
Scripture into series of ages. 
God rules differently in each age. Okay? Any questions on that dispensational idea? I mean, Bob was talking in the sermon a little bit about covenants. God made covenants. And then he kind of said that all covenants are still in intact. They're still being uh, um, fulfilled. But the idea from, from the church's point of view, I believe, and the apostles' point of view, and Jesus himself is, okay, the covenant with Adam, well, it still exists in the sense, but a new Adam has come. Okay, and he's, he's fulfilled the covenant perfectly, and we need him to. And the covenant with Abraham and Abraham's seed, well, the seed has come. He is the son of Abraham, and, all, and he inherits all that Abraham was about. And, and you go on and on with the various covenants and how Jesus is the, uh, the I guess, the consummation of them, okay? But that doesn't mean they disappear. That means this is what they were meant to be about. And the church regularly would, would have taught that. Premillennial, number three, premillennial dispensationalism believes that the Great Tribulation is the event that transitions from the church to national Israel, you know, back to national Israel. It will last for seven years. Stanley rejects the idea that there's a future great tribulation coming. Okay, post-millennialism would reject that. But has anybody ever heard of the great tribulation? Raise your hand. Exactly. I mean, everybody has heard of that. Because it's popular out there. And they think it's so convincing. Oh, well, yes, yeah, well, they, but to do it, they have to take, uh, my argument would be, little passages or verses out of the context that, that they were spoken in or, or written about, and then they hoist them into the future. And uh, it, I think typically the idea of this great tribulation, typically the, the, the language is going to be taken from what Jesus said. When he said, not one stone will be left upon another, and these terrible things will be coming and happening. He certainly was right when he said it. But uh, a post-millennialist person would say that he was talking about the destruction coming in 70 AD. He wasn't talking about a future thing, even though he wrapped words of his own coming into the uh, discussion. So um, there's there's uh, Yes, you're right, Georgina, to make it so convincing. Number four as well. This is a little harder to accept, I believe, even for the person who believes in the great tribulation that's coming. Number four, premillennial dispensationalism believes in a rapture of the church that will occur before, during, or at the end of the great tribulation. Depending upon the position of the teacher you follow, a.k.a. pre-trip, mid-trip, and post-trip. Okay, so this idea that Jesus will steal us away. Coming in the clouds, they say, is a, like a secret coming. Steal us away so that we don't have to either go through the tribulation at the church, or we only have to go through half of it and then he relieves us of it. Or some believe we've got to go through the whole seven years and then we'll take you away. Sam disagrees with that, I, I think I've preached more than once sermons on the rapture language used in scripture is really talking about the resurrection. Okay? The rapture is
gotta you gotta re reread scripture passages to, to try to view it from resurrection ideas point of view. Number five, premillennial dispensationalism believes this means that Jesus will return partially. He's coming in the clouds in order to rapture rescue the church from tribulation. Number six. Now that was that's not his second coming, according to that, the big one. That's just like a little one. A little quibble. In and out. Number six, premillennial dispensationalism believes the Antichrist will arise as a historical man who will rule very wickedly during the Great Tribulation, the greatest attack will come upon national ethnic Israel. Why would I say it comes upon national ethnic Israel? Well, depending on what view of the rapture you held to in this way of thinking, the church wouldn't be here, right? So all this persecution has to come against national ethnic Israel, God's people, or any that now start to come to the gospel during this seven-year period. They might be um, victims of, of this oppression and tyranny as well. Number seven, premillennial dispensational oh, uh, I'm going to start saying PD pretty soon, sorry. Uh, believes in a rebuilt temple. Okay? Because if you go back to Jesus saying, you know, look at this, not one stone will be left here upon another. If that is future talk to us, then they've got to rebuild the temple in order for that calamitous thing to take place against the temple. Right now, there is no temple. Not one stone was left upon another in 70 AD. That was part of what Jesus forewarned that generation about. That all these things will come upon that generation he was speaking to back then. They haven't had a temple since 70 AD. There's been no sacrifices. Hallelujah since 70 AD. Why is it hallelujah? Because Jesus paid it once for all. But they have put that out there that they're building the temple and all about the stuff that goes with it. And, and, and uh, let me put it, yes, I believe, oh, and this, it's, there's always a new, new thing. Thought with every turn of the newspaper. They could. Let's just say they decide and they start, Israel decides, we're going to build a temple again to God. That's a fruitless effort that they should not even pursue because that would be another insult to the Son of God who is accomplished. Okay. Who, who himself said he does not dwell in temples, you know, made by the hands of men. And um, he said to that woman in Samaria, Samaria uh, neither in Jerusalem nor on your holy mountain will men worship me. Okay? All who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. And that's been happening since the resurrection. Is part of, not to agree with it, but is part of, I'm remembering part of the reason why you believe that there was, the temple would need to be rebuilt is because the temple never was rebuilt according to Ezekiel's. Um, like 
racial system. Now, they're not uh, so foolish as to say they will take away the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay. And I, I got to be careful because I don't want to uh, present the problems uh, of the, their system with complete ridicule. The reverse has happened so long that the people holding this view have ridiculed other views as if they were not Christian or did not exist, that it's very hard to stomach uh, <coughs> the mentality that has uh, you know, been pushed down upon others. But they don't they wouldn't believe that this new sacrificial system with the temple was uh, erasing the work of Jesus. They wouldn't say that. They would just be arguing that these are memorial type things. Okay, they're memorializing what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I think that would be the way that that they would say it. Even even as the Old Testament sacrifices in the temple, I mean, they were pointing to Christ. We have Christ. I think they would argue that this rebuilt by the national Israel. Trying to reestablish, although we know it can only point back to the work of Jesus if it happens down the road here. Uh, they they would be they would still be uh, I guess then having these sacrifices in, in a memorial sense of some sort. There's probably some nuances there that I'm not quite grasping. Number nine, PD. Let's call it PD. Jesus' second coming will put an end to the Great Tribulation and defeat the Antichrist. Salmon would say there is no Great Tribulation and Antichrist could defeat. He will be coming back. But it will be at the end of human slash history kind of stuff in this inter interadvental period where things get better and better and better. <coughs> at the end of that. Interadvental means his first coming and his second Number 10, BD believes that Jesus will then set up his throne in Jerusalem to rule from there. His people will rule with him, while non-believers will continue upon the earth and submit themselves, however reluctantly, to his kingship. If non-believers are still upon the earth when Jesus has set up this 1,000-year reign of, you know, paradisic, you know, this golden age, and they are complying with him, but they still haven't been changed Hearts. They are complying reluctantly. They resent it. They resent him. They might appreciate some of the peace that they get to experience, but they're still living for themselves. That seems like a, an empty kingship, doesn't it? Because these are the same people that, that will be both the same after the thousand years are empty. That's an empty kingship. It's like your mom and dad, you obey them.
or if you got a nine, correct me if incorrect. Twelve uh, PD believes this rulership of Jesus will last for a thousand years, the millennium reign, and things will become like paradise. The lion will lay with the wolf, the small child will put his hand into a viper's nest without casualty, people will live a very long time, etc. Uh, but he has to be here for it to happen. And uh, living a very long time, if there was only truly a thousand years, then you can only really, the, the oldest living people, what, if they live like three, four hundred years again, or seven hundred year old, nine hundred year old, uh, you only got, you know, what, three generations you can have them because it's only going to be a thousand years. Where post-millennialism would say, yeah, we, we would believe that things get better and our, our uh, lifespans will increase again like days of old. But, these could be, like I said, 80,000 years, 125,000 years, a million years, who knows? Thirteen, P.E. believes the Satan will be bound in a pit during this 1,000-year reign of Jesus. Honorable. So he's not bound yet, he will be bound. Samlin points out on how premillennial dispensationalism has gone up a 
seminaries who previously taught it. However, it is still pop popular among the masses, the radio masses, you know, the podcast masses, the uh, newsletter that comes in your email or in your post, post office box masses. Pages two and four, Stanley points out the irony of dispensationalists. They deny the Old Testament law, but claim to literally interpret Old Testament prophecy. And that's where they become so like uh, convincing something. No, they're literally interpreting it. It has to happen literally, as it said was said by the prophet. Sandlin writes, there's a powerful reason for this. Dispensationalism is primarily an eschatological system, not an ethical system. It's a philosophy of history, not a program of behavior. And then uh, C, the New Testament does just the opposite. New Testament does just the opposite. Jesus and the apostles, they uphold the Old Testament law. But do not in large and not in large measure interpret Old Testament prophecy literally. And he'll get into that. Jesus and, and the apostles, they weren't literalistic about Old Testament prophecy. They believed it. They believed it was fulfilled. They understood it, but they, they do not uh, Approach Old Testament scripture the way today's dispensationalist does. Um, D, the New Testament writers interpret and clarify the meaning of the Old Testament for the church. It's fulfilled in the church. This was the glorious goal. A church made up of Jews and Gentiles of all the nations, the many peoples and many tongues. However, it is not according to a cardboard literalistic scheme. Dispensationalists insist on literalness, which is an external and alien scheme to the New Testament writers. Pages four and five, Sam's main argument against the PD has to do, see there's where I finally realized I should probably come up with an acronym. <laughs> I should have, yeah, I should have done that like the second time I used the words. PD has to do with the foundation of their system. One essential cornerstone, okay? According to the New Testament, who are God's people? This is the thing that Sandlin has spent the rest of this chapter. Who are God's people? It's Sandlin's focus because one of PD's leading defenders, Charles Riley, stated, quote, the essence of dispensationalism, then, is the distinction between Israel and the church. Israel bookends and the church in the middle. Okay. Sandlin spends the rest of the chapter obliterating that distinction. Um, just a uh, word for the wise. I, I first became a Christian. I went into the Christian bookstore and I said, I want a good Bible. I want kind of a leather bound type one, you know. And I want to spend some money on it as a college kid. And they said, well, this would be good. And it was the Charles Ryrie Study Bible. Okay? So that meant at the bottom, that's, that's the guy's name here, Charles Ryrie. He was a dispensationalist. That meant at the bottom, all those little helpful comments and notes that when you're reading the Bible, you can look, look down and say, oh, that person meant this or what this meant. I was like sucking all that in as a young Christian. So I was getting dispensationalism. I was getting a view of the end of uh, history from what Charles Ryrie's view was. You gotta be very careful who you put in your back pocket to be your teacher. And, and when you've got a study Bible, 
and you've got the notes at the bottom, someone's being your teacher. So I can be real careful and academic, maybe, but what, what academic viewpoint are they taking, right? And so uh, it's always it's good caution to choose carefully your Bibles, especially if it's a study Bible, where they're going to help you think on what these things mean. Charles Ryder said, I don't know that today. I tossed it. Okay. Okay. I don't think I gave it away, because once I realized that this is bad stuff, um, I didn't necessarily put it in anybody else's hands either. So. I'll, I'll, I'm going to finish up uh, just a little bit, and then we'll probably revisit this next week, because this is the big chapter. Argument on pages 5 and 7, argument 1. Oh, I should stop right there. Let's just do argument 1. He's going to spend the rest of his time saying, who is God's people according to Scripture? Not according to dispensations. Argument 1. The one olive tree of Romans 11, 13-24 indicates it can only be one people. The olive tree combines both ethnic Jew and Gentile into the church of Jesus Christ. The Jewish natural branches and the Gentile wild branches grafted into the tree grow together one olive tree. God offers only one single way of redemption for all peoples, language, languages, and nations. Uh, read Romans 11 if you have 13 through 24, because I think dispensationalists would say, well look, you had the, the natural tree of Jews, then God grafted in Gentiles and people from other nations, and then look, it says, how will it not also be the case that Jews see this will want to be part of the tree again? And God will wrap them in again. So they'll say, see how that is proving our point. And we would need to say, there's one way to God, there is one people of God, and it is Jew and Gentiles combined. And uh, to, to start to um, separate that or create some kind of dichotomy. Uh, is unbiblical, and his first point was Paul. Paul points it out here, and the rest of his points and arguments will do the same thing. How the New Testament says, no, there's one people of God. So when you have war in Israel right now, right, and they're looking to support, and you get these Christian people saying, oh, support it. This could be it. This could be it. And they always want to spend so much time focusing on Israel, what's happening there, and always wanting to support financially that. It's because probably, not always, probably they believe in this middle system. And anything we can do then will ramp things up and get things going for Jesus to return. Right? And, and if God wants them to be the centerpiece of his, uh, of his future plan, then we should support that too. But what they don't say is that plan involves millions upon millions of them being slaughtered.
So bring these back next time.